Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. After escaping an attack in Homer, coordinated by the Black Door Group, McAllen and Tully stumbled onto the Cedar Realm, lying in deep water in the Gulf of Alaska. The Hail Mary's mini-sub and ROV were jerry-rigged together in order to launch a recovery mission for the mysterious key that McAllen had been searching for. When they reached the wreck at almost 10,000 feet underwater, McAllen and Tully discover that the key is actually a sarcophagus and the female face that adorns it bears a striking resemblance to McAllen. As the pair pull away from the wreck, with the key in hand, they discover that the Cedar Elm was covered with depth charges that suddenly detonated, sending the mini-sub reeling in the explosion. Meanwhile, back on the surface, Oberlin is kidnapped by Wit Roberts and is questioned and tortured in an abandoned offshore oil rig. His current whereabouts are unknown. The explosion of the Cedar Elm left McAllen and Tully injured, but Tully was far worse for wear. After manually inflating their lift bags, McAllen and Tully began a rocky and perilous journey to the surface, where upon breaching, they found a strangely modified gunboat bearing down on them. Using one of the depth charges from the Cedar Elm that was lodged in the ROV, Tully secretly maneuvered it under the hull of the gunboat and activated the charge, instantly incinerating the gunboat. With the threat of the gunboat eliminated, the gravity of their situation strikes McAllen and Tully. They are floating dead in the frigid Alaskan water, with no heat, no power or food. With no options left, McAllen uses the communication device given to her by Anton and Othello, thus alerting them, and potentially others, to her location. Anton and Othello pick up McAllen and Tully in the Condor, and advanced aircraft capable of supersonic speed in the air, as well as high-speed underwater maneuvers. Once inside, McAllen examines the key, which opens to reveal a hollow chamber inside. As soon as McAllen enters, the door swings shut and multiple needles enter her skin as the key alters her DNA. She emerges from the sarcophagus several inches taller, and is told that she has somehow become immortal. She is able to sense Anton and Othello's thoughts and feels strangely energized. Both she and Tully demand more answers about their predicament. Anton and Othello oblige by informing them that they are being taken to someone who can provide all of the answers they are seeking. And now, Chapter 8, In the Beginning. The condor streaked across a blood-red sky, rapidly approaching the Indian subcontinent. It was still several hundred miles away, but at their altitude of 120,000 feet, it appeared to be directly below them. It's almost dark. Let's recalibrate the SATCOM and initiate a gradual descent pattern before we enter Glidespin. We'll be in Mumbai by nightfall. All frequencies are clear. Looks like we're all set for a nice, quiet descent. In for a change. The Condor began its descent over the Indian city of Mumbai, formerly known as Bombay. Mumbai was the financial and entertainment capital of India. McAllen had learned the general maneuvering ritual that the Condor adopted when it approached its landing zone. It didn't land gradually like a commercial airliner. The wind shear and turbine noise prevented that, given the Condor's extreme stealth profile. Rather, it reached its destination high in the atmosphere and entered into a radical descent pattern called glide spin, similar to a high-speed VTOL landing. The condor set down in some mangroves near Mahim Creek, by the edge of a settlement of some sort. McAllen saw thousands of lights, but noted that the lights were different from those that colored the city. These lights were flickering flashes of yellow and orange, not like the steady fluorescence and neon of the city lights. Fires. They're all fires and lanterns. Othello, what's that over there? Hopefully answers for all of us. A motorized rickshaw puttered to the edge of the Mahim Creek. 
Anton McAllen and Tully climbed in the back as the taxi driver began navigating the labyrinth of twisting streets through Doravi. As they entered the slum, small children darted out frantically to see the white visitors who so rarely penetrated this deeply into the slums. Out of the corner of McAllen's eye, she spied Tully staring off into space, looking forlorn. I'd love to know what's on your mind. In the past 24 hours, I've lost my boat, my mini-sub, my best friend, probably my mind. Tully, we don't know what happened to Oberlin. You saw the armament on that gunboat. You saw them shooting at us. There's a blood hunt out for you, or this key, or whatever. Oberlin? Oberlin never stood a chance. These guys don't care who gets hurt in their little crusade. You... you blame me for Oberlin? You do, don't you? I don't mean to eavesdrop, but we've almost reached our destination. Ojamalale. McAllen, when we get inside, stay very close to me and move quickly. Captain Tully, I am sorry for your material loss. I can only assure you that you will be more than compensated for the full value of your loss, in addition to your time and considerable effort. And in terms of your first mate's whereabouts, I'm afraid we don't have any concrete answers yet. However, to be completely candid with you, Captain, I do have the distinct feeling that he is still alive and none of us should be giving up hope. I never did. Well, you have my absolute word that McAllen, Othello and myself will do everything in our power to find and rescue your friend Oberlin. If there's anything we whoa, can... Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean, you and McAllen? I'm not going anywhere. I want to find out what happened to my best friend and... Captain Tully, I'm afraid this is where we part ways. A rickshaw will pick you up and take you I don't think you understand. To... I'm not going anywhere. You can just go straight to hell if Hey, you... Tully, Tully, please. Anton, he's right. You know, this is all my fault. You and Sension wanted me to hire historical explorations and go after the key. It was my bright idea to hire Tully, and I was the one who dragged him into this. And despite that, he stepped up for me and risked his life to protect me. Oberlin, too. Tully deserves to be a part of this. It's personal for him, too. McAllen, I don't... Anton, everyone keeps telling me how special I am. Well, I think it's high time you started treating me that way. Tully stays with me, period. And so help me God, if we don't help him, I won't cooperate with you or Leviathan in any way whatsoever. Very well, McAllen. Although I suspect Captain Tully may be asking to leave of his own accord very shortly. As he will. However, I must insist that you remain outside, Captain Tully. You'll be safe here. She and I have business inside. McAllen, we're about to go inside this workshop. Listen to me carefully. I want you to stay very close to me and move quickly. The rickshaw stopped in front of a cinder block home with a corrugated tin roof from which McAllen could smell smoke emanating. Dark-skinned women were kneeling outside the small vestibule in front of the house, with stacks of beautiful, intricate pottery laid out in front of them. They had entered the Kumba section of Doravi, who were one of the oldest and predominant castes within the Doravi slum. The Kumba descended from a clan of potters and have been in residence in Doravi for over 150 years. Each family shared a communal kiln from which they would create their own distinct pottery. Their artistry was as legendary as their tendency to remain reclusive and associate only with those within their own sect. The pottery is beautiful. I think it's time that you meet the master potter. Follow me inside. The two of them walked inside the house and were instantly faced by six Gujarati bodyguards holding Kalishnikov rifles at attention. It's all right. I brought the wine. I told them it's all right, McKellen. McAllen didn't feel comfortable making direct eye contact with so many people, and instead tried to take in the details of the darkly lit room. The room was dominated by a large brick kiln that harbored a blazing fire within. It stood about seven feet tall, and there was an open door through which potters could fuel the fire with logs and coal that were stacked by its side. A chimney led upwards, but even in the relative darkness of the room, McAllen could see black smoke leaking out of the kiln into the room. The walls were covered in soot, and the room seemed utterly filthy. Stacks of pottery, large and small, were piled up in primitive shelves. McCallum wiped her brow that was now covered in sweat, as heat seemed to be pouring out of every crevice in the room. My God, it's like an oven in here. I'm dying. Actually, it is an oven. Here, drink this. It will help you cool down. McAllen hesitated for a split second and then eagerly drank down the cool, milky drink that was offered to her. It tasted nutty and mildly sweet, and McAllen realized how long it had been since she enjoyed a proper meal. It's time, McAllen. Time for what? For a split second, McAllen wondered if her instincts about Anton had been wrong all of this time. 
Had he really brought her all this way, just to kill her now that the Leviathan group had obtained their special key, or whatever it was they were looking for? Was this why he wanted Tully to wait outside of the house? Anton took a step towards McAllen, and she stepped backwards instinctively. The six guards tightened their position by the front door, prohibiting any type of escape. <laughs> you know what they say, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And with a quick step, Anton ducked his head into the door of the giant kiln and walked into the searing flames inside. Anton! The guards by the door nodded their heads forward, gesturing for McKellen to follow Anton's lead. I'm supposed to walk into a burning oven? No way! But then, McKellen heard something unusual. The faint buzzing of mechanical equipment from within the oven. The kiln itself looked to be more than a hundred years old and seemed utterly devoid of moving parts or any type of technology. But then she remembered Anton's words to her in the rickshaw earlier. McCallum, listen to me carefully. I want you to stay very close to me and move quickly. <sighs> McCallum took a deep breath and walked forward towards the kiln, feeling the heat rise as she got closer. Just as she was about to touch the searing hot bricks of the kiln, mere inches from her skin, she felt the temperature drop precipitously. Huh? McAllen ducked her head to enter the doorway of the kiln and was amazed to see the flames within have no effect whatsoever on her skin. She felt neither hot nor any pain. Two steps inside the fire, she was able to see a very steep set of narrow stairs that descended down about 10 feet. The steps led to a small landing where Anton stood outside an open elevator door. Well, you certainly took your own sweet time. What the hell kept you? What the hell just happened? You walked into a burning oven. I walked into a burning oven. How come we're both fine? Why hasn't my flesh been burnt off? Is it because... Is it because we're both immortal? Because we're part of Leviathan? <laughs> my god, no. I said we were immortal, not invulnerable. Leviathan members have some enhanced human abilities, like superior strength and speed, and some telepathic capacity, but we can be killed and injured just like anyone else. But then why weren't you burnt to a crisp? Why aren't because you- Because there was no flame there. It was a holographic projection. Oh, but I felt the heat. Floorboards. Well, we installed the floorboards and walls within the room upstairs to conduct radiant heat so as to give the impression of a working kiln. The kiln itself has been inactive and has been for over 75 years. But the Kumbar Potters of Daravi are a highly secretive sect and have been stewards and confidants of Leviathan for a long time. There are people that know how to keep secrets, McAllen. That house above represents a hidden entrance to one of our most important secrets. And what secret is that? Come see for yourself. The elevator doors opened to a giant room filled with computer monitors and sophisticated electronic equipment that was being operated by hundreds of Indian workers. The room resembled one of the giant financial trading floors that McAllen always saw on the news. People seemed to be very busy and not paying her much attention. Everything seemed very clean and very modern. But as McAllen looked closer, something struck her as odd. There was no IBM, Dell, HPs, or even Apple computers. The computers that were manned by the workers looked rounder, more organic. And the keyboards before them seemed to be constantly changing. At first, they would resemble standard keyboards with letters and numbers, but then levers, dials, and strange buttons would suddenly morph in front of their fingers for the workers to manipulate. Oh my god. Interactive holography. The interfaces that our workers are manipulating are very complicated. The interface can constantly change depending on what the workers are trying to accomplish, whether it's typing an email to a senator or conducting a computer simulation of the effect of ambient nuclear radiation of greenhouse gas buildup. Who are these people? Well, they all work for the Leviathan Group, at least one branch of it. Primarily, they are members of the Kumbar sect, and this place is one of our primary research and operational nerve centers. They look like operators at Mission Control. <laughs> well, that's a good analogy. These operators, as you call them, are conducting a wide range of activities for Leviathan around the world. That person there is analyzing high-resolution satellite photos for geological anomalies in Mongolia. That other person there is executing stock purchases through one of our Swiss bank accounts. And this person closest to us is piloting an underwater robotic drone that we are using to determine the effectiveness of the Chinese sonar defense system that surrounds their naval borders. What? How can that be? We're underneath a slum in India. 
How do these people have the skills and the technology? This is one of the many secrets that you will learn. The Kumba sect, the potter class of Mumbai, has been something of a ruse. Their people are well known for their astonishingly intricate pottery, but also for the secrecy with which they hand their craft down through the generations, from parents to children and onward. But their pottery secrets are not the only ones they keep. While their pottery craft is highly skilled, it remains a ruse for their real calling. The Leviathan group adopted the Kumba sect over 500 years ago in exchange for the complete fidelity of the individuals you see before the workstations. Leviathan pledges to support their family in perpetuity, to watch over their children and children's children. They know of our immortality, of our power, of our riches, and have kept our work hidden. Their secretive nature and disassociation with others make them the perfect allies in our war. War against whom? Come. I'm going to leave that for someone else to explain to you. Someone you might be relieved to see. On the other end of the gigantic operations centre sat two enormous wooden French doors. Primitive handles that resembled small logs adorned each side. McAllen thought to herself that a baby giant might reside inside. The thought was no crazier than finding a futuristic command center located beneath Asia's poorest and largest slum, stationed by a secretive sect of potters. But as she got closer, Anton made a gesture to the two Kumbar guards that were standing by each door. They each grabbed a single handle and pulled with all of their might. The doors opened with a low groan and revealed a plush interior office that contrasted sharply with the stark modern operations center outside of it. McAllen and Anton walked inside to find a room that would have been only appropriate within one of the finest palaces in India. Two sets of vaulted stone arches seemed to support the exquisitely detailed ceiling that was engraved with lapis and jasper stones in a royal paisley design. On the thick marble shelves located on the sides of the room sat dusty pottery that looked to be hundreds of years old next to the jeweled chalices encrusted with rubies and sapphires. A Persian rug that was larger than any McAllen had ever seen stretched from the entranceway to the massive semisphere desk that sat at the far end of the room. I've seen that desk before. I saw one just like it in Senshin's office. Familiarity creates affection, but not wisdom. Sedgwick! Oh my god! What are you doing here? Did Leviathan capture you? <laughs> no, no. I'm afraid I'm the one who's captured you. Or should I say rescued, based on Anton and Othello's report. You see, McAllen, I'm a part of Leviathan. I've always been a part of Leviathan. You? Sedgwick? Are you telling me that you're immortal? Yes. Just as you are now. What? How long have you... I'm... I'm so confused. How... How long have I been immortal? Over 600 years now. Why did you never tell me about yourself or Leviathan or... To protect you. Because you are special. I have lived close to you and watched over you your entire life. Please, Sedgwick, just explain it to me. Why does everyone keep calling me special? You have a right to know, McAllen. And it is time I told you the truth about who you are. But in order for you to understand yourself, you must understand where you came from. Where we all came from. What do you mean? Immortality. You need to understand how it was gifted to us. And what we now face. You have an important role in all of it now, McAllen. We need you. I still don't understand. You soon will. To explain all of it to you, I must take you back almost a thousand years from today. All of this started in southern Norway, in the coastal town of Somnertok in the year 1043. Christianity had begun to take hold in Scandinavia. And the first, and the first crusade, crusade was only 30 years away. Many of the major Viking tribes had made incursions into Scotland, Ireland and part of England. Regional power was constantly shifting and local conflict often superseded any sense of national identity. It was a bitterly cold day in September, and a chilling wind had gathered force on the North Sea that was now being released upon Sumnatok. Villagers were hurrying on the streets to bring in firewood and anything else that might burn to keep them warm from the damp cold that was quickly settling in. The heavy frost wasn't expected for several weeks, and as a result caught almost all the villagers unprepared. A tall woman with long ruby-like hair marched angrily down the center street within town. She carried herself with great authority and grace, but her furious expression left no question that she was not to be trifled with today. 
Evangeline Liefrick was the leader and high priestess of the ancient Valkyrie tribe of Nords that lived high in the interior fords. The tribe became allies with a British exploration party that stumbled upon them several years before. The British were amazed at the technology of the Valkyrie. Their ship construction was vastly superior, as well as their knowledge of medicine and science. When the tribe decided to relocate much deeper in the interior, Evangeline elected to stay behind with the leader of the exploratory group, Piter Scarleton. The two had become passionate lovers, but on this day in Somnatok, she felt little love in her heart for anyone. She approached the home she shared with Piter Scarleton and ripped open the front door and slammed it shut with all of her force. I cannot stand the imbeciles of the town council. They've assembled themselves a group of ignorant hypocrites. My God, Evangeline, control yourself. What happened, darling? Talk to me. We will all die if we don't leave soon. The idiots on the town council will see to that soon enough. Evangeline, tell me what happened. I told you that I approached the council for my request for 40 barrels of saffron. I was told their decision will be made today. When I entered the council chamber, I was met by that sniveling worm, Kriegerson, who told me that the council will not have time to meet with me today, but that my request had been both considered and denied. Oh, darling, I am so sorry. But we both knew the chances of... The chances of us all being alive in six months are even slimmer. Piter, I needed those supplies to create a cure, even a vaccine for the Scaradoth exiles on Elkinor Island. They lie less than 10 miles off our coast. Their infection will become our infection soon. Have you seen how they die, Piter? They become so racked with pain that they can't move out of their beds. Their eyes turn as red as my hair as they slowly lose the ability to see the world around them. They become lost in horrible visions and nightmares that torment them until they die, screaming themselves so hoarse that blood trickles from the mouths of their corpses. Last month, I found an infected family whose ears had withered away into mere nubs. Enough, Evangeline. You're lucky you haven't contracted the satanic disease yourself when you visited them. I have enough medicine to cure myself, and you if need be, but not a city of thousands. Sumnatok has grown into a substantial port city, almost as large as Mandal. If we... For God's sake, be reasonable. The inhabitants of Elkinor Island were banished there by the British and Viking armies. They refused to abandon their pagan religion and accept Christianity as their path to salvation. The church's law on this matter was resolute, and they were lucky not to be executed. It was only by my intervention that they were able to spare their lives and merely banish them. To a barren rock island with barely enough food to feed the children, let alone the adults. The church believes that these people are cursed, Evangeline. They believe that the disease is God's punishment and that their fate was brought upon by themselves. God has nothing to do with it, and you know it. Those people, whatever stupid religion they choose to believe, are still human beings and deserve to be treated as such. I can cure them, Piter. I've studied the ancient text of my people. You know I come from a long lineage of medicine women, leaders of our villages, female shaman that were respected for their wisdom and healing power. I've read their text and have found records of a disease similar to this one over 200 years ago. It was cured using a complex potion containing concentrated amounts of saffron. I know if we can obtain enough, we can wipe out this disease before it jumps on the mainland. On to Sumnatok. I don't yet know how it spreads, but a week ago, when I was walking through the forest collecting my herbs, I found a nest of dead eaglets, all with blood-red eyes. This horrible disease will spread, Piter. First killing your people on the coast, then my people deep in the mountains, and from there, who knows how far it will spread. Maybe as far as Britain if the birds contract it. Isn't there anything you can do? You're still Commandant of the Regional Naval Forces. You, you still carry a great deal of authority. On military matters, yes. Not on local matters. That is now the Church's domain. Times have changed, Evangeline, and we must be careful not to arouse suspicion. In my village, the leaders were chosen by their wisdom, not by some patriarchal, monotheistic lie of a religion. Your leaders were always women, as part of the Valkyrie tradition. That fact alone disqualifies your opinion from any serious consideration at the council level. At least as long as the council members are hand-picked by the bishop. And do you believe a woman should have no voice as well? <laughs> My dear, I find your voice, your reason, and your beauty to be one of the most compelling things that I have ever encountered 
in all of my travels around the globe. That is why I am so hopelessly in love with you. Your counsel and advice have guided me for several years and given me the happiest times I have ever known. You are my partner and equal, and shall always be my Valkyrie goddess. Piter had met Evangeline seven years earlier as the British explored Scandinavia on the behalf of the Church of England. The Crusades were beginning their process in earnest, and the British had successfully launched a campaign that combined missionary zeal with their considerable military forces. Commandant Piter Scarleton had successfully orchestrated several high-profile naval missions in the North and Celtic Seas. His loyalty to the Crown had little to do with religion, as he was secretly an atheist. Seeing many of his closest friends and his father killed on the high seas had assured that. However, he did believe in the civilizing forces of British colonization, to bring medicine, schooling and rule of law to otherwise savage nations. To bring justice to a world still largely ruled by barbarians was, in his mind, a noble vocation. Out of that loyalty to both crown and sword, he acquiesced to one final mission in Scandinavia. The Viking nations of Scandinavia long stood as a thorn in the side of the British government. Their savagery stood in painful contrast to the orderly rigidness of England's stratified society. But one could also not deny the strength of the Viking army that had colonized much of Scotland and Ireland. It was exactly this savageness that had long held off any invaders and kept the Scandinavian countries firmly independent. But in 1036, British intelligence noted a substantial regional war had erupted between two pagan factions on the southwest Norwegian coast, the Valkyrie and the Skaradoth. Little was known about either group, but it was known that the Skaradoth were a wild and violent people and were rooted in their Wiccan worship of nature gods. The Valkyrie, on the other hand, considered themselves too evolved to embrace organized religion and focused their efforts on the pursuit of gaining insight into the natural environment around them. This conflict had been underway for many years. The Valkyrie were able to hold off the Skaradoth despite their greater numbers by applying the Valkyrie's superior knowledge of science and could reportedly produce a potion capable of bestowing their supernatural strength to their own warriors who were feared throughout Norway. Furthermore, it was said that all the various Valkyrie villages were ruled by holy medicine women who each alone possessed the secret to the revered potion. Piter began his exploratory campaign by conducting a reconnaissance mission through the Valkyrie Highland. Upon crossing their borders, he found himself swiftly captured by a group of Valkyrie soldiers that had approached him in complete stealth. Rather than killing him, the Valkyrie soldiers took him to see their village chief, a beautiful woman with long red hair that stood as tall as Piter. The chief introduced herself as Evangeline Liefrich and went on to explain that her village and the neighboring Valkyrie villages were peaceful in nature, but under attack from the vast hordes of Skaradoth barbarians. She described the Skaradoth worship techniques that involved cannibalism and human sacrifice to their elemental gods, and that they ruled themselves by passion, not reason. Piter instantly recognized and respected the restraint and courtesy that this village chief accorded him. Over the course of several meals, Evangeline questioned Piter about his homeland and his intentions in Norway, whether it was the fact that he knew he was in a vulnerable position or that he was quickly becoming smitten with his captor Piter decided to tell Evangeline the truth about the British intentions of converting her homeland into Christians. Evangeline respected his honesty and could see that before her was a man of principle, not religion. She admired his courage to be honest with her, and she too found herself nurturing a growing affection for this handsome Englishman. Together they devised a plan that served both of their needs. Piter would return to England and tell of the savagery of the Skaradoth people, and that he had identified a sympathetic local tribe that would serve as guides and healers for their incoming British forces. Evangeline would be able to utilize the force of the incoming army to crush her Skaradoth enemies and afford safety for her people. Piter gave his word that his knowledge of the location of the Valkyrie villages would remain secret, thus ensuring that Crusades would never find their way to Evangeline's people. During the ensuing battle, Evangeline became Piter's confidant and advisor. Their love for one another grew, 
until finally upon the completion of the campaign and the banishment of the Skaradoth, Piter invited Evangeline to live with him in the port city of Somnatok, where he was granted a substantial plot of land just off the city center. Evangeline cherished her time at his side as they regarded each other as equals. She would question him incessantly about his travels across the globe for the British Navy, and he would listen for hours as she would recite the medicinal properties of herbs and her experimentation with imported ingredients. Together, the scientist and the explorer had a contented life for almost seven years. Their idyllic life together took a turn for the worse 18 months ago, when word came from Canterbury that the democratically elected town council would be dissolved, and new council members would be dispatched from England to ensure that the standards of colonial society were being met. It took no time to realize the new council was a puppet government for the Church of England that had now taken its bloody war of religious conversion as far as Finland. Both Piter and Evangeline were disgusted by the onslaught of new laws that the council ordained in the name of Christian authority, and Evangeline felt her hatred for the church grow. Something had to be done, and Evangeline had come up with a very radical idea. This plague, if not contained, could be the death of us all. It is utterly deadly and will spread like pollen. It will make its way to the mainland here, and could very well make its way to your jolly old England if an epidemic breaks out. There must be something you can do, Piter. Not without arousing suspicion, Eva. You know that. If it appears that I am being sympathetic to the local population, then I'll be cut out of the British command structure and all hope of our plans will be lost. We must think of the greater good. I've been waiting for word from the good Dr. Stephen Parker, my closest friend I've told you about in London, to confirm his commitment to our project. I'd expected to get word days ago, but perhaps this damn cold front has delayed his post. Weather can confound the best laid plans, can't it? After a month of waiting for his message from London to be delivered, Piter Scarleton decided that the only thing that had arrived was winter. In a few more weeks, the port harbour would be too frozen for the larger ships to make their way in. Can I make you some tea, dear? I'd make it myself if the kitchen wasn't so damn far away. I wish we could cure this bout of illness for you. It's not like you to be sick for over a week. How is your leg? Still quite numb, I'm afraid. <clears throat> but I think that I can... You'll do nothing but sit there and rest. I'll prepare some tea for you with a licorice root you like so much. <sighs> a kind of soul I have never known. Evangeline! Rest, rest, I have it, dear. Oh, Mr. Kriegerson, to what do my Piter and I owe this unexpected pleasure? Ah, oh, Mrs. Scarleton, the pleasure is... Oh, my, you must excuse my manners. I always assume that you and the Commandant are betrothed, given the length of time that the two of you have cohabitated. Our living arrangements are none of your concern. No, most certainly not. The Commandant is not well today, Mr. Kriegerson. I ask you again to please state your business. Of course. First, let me express my sympathies to the Commandant for falling ill to this lamentably early winter weather. It seems it could fall to Mr. The Kriegerson, please state your business. Of course, Commandant. Please forgive my exuberance, but it is not often that Somnatok gets to see its favorite hero. You've become a bit of a recluse, and are very missed at the council meetings, as well as church services. Mr. Kriegerson. But I bring joyous news, Commandant. At least joyous to a naval man such as yourself. I bring news that the bishop himself has personally requested your reinstatement to full active duty to command one of the newest and finest war vessels in the British arsenal. An experimental craft that was designed for long-term sustainability as well as maximum firepower. It was built using a Norse design, but with hardwoods found only in parts of Spain. It uses multiple masts and a unique steering mechanism that will make it the most maneuverable ship in the water. Thirty crossbow stations are fixed on both the port and starboard sides. The ship is large enough to hold provisions for a crew of 30 for weeks on end. We call it the Chalice. Incredible. I've never heard of such a ship. Multiple masts, just remarkable. 
But what, pray tell, does the British Crown intend to do with its newest jewel? And more importantly, what does it have to do with me? It would seem that Bulgaria is still nurturing pagan elements that are hostile to the Holy Roman Empire and the shining path of salvation that Christianity represents. These heathens have taken to piracy in the Aegean Sea and Western Mediterranean and have cut off shipping lanes from the Roman ports to Constantinople. This matter has taken on a great degree of urgency, as several of the ship's cargo contained vital historical artifacts to be presented to His Holiness, the Pope. Oh, pardon me while I straighten up in the kitchen. Nordic influence has overcome most of England. There are some who believe that our faith is being tested. A Christian empire will have the strength to overcome its Viking oppressors and reach its grasp out across Europe and beyond. I don't need to tell you how important Jerusalem would be to the empire. By placating the Pope, England could rise again Mr. Kriegerson, as you can see, I am not well, and sadly have my strongest days behind me. Surely there is another sea captain who could... Ah, the Commandant is so very modest, but I assure you that the bishop has requested your leadership in this matter personally and specifically. You see, the Holy Papacy and the Vatican have been unsuccessful in recovering many of these treasured artifacts. The Vatican feels that it is the rightful owner of these artifacts and that they should reside safely in the Vatican. So you want me to be a mercenary, a hired gun of the crown so that it and the church can get their cut of a looted bounty that belongs to someone else. I'm very sorry that the Commandant chooses to view this matter so unfortunately. There are other ways for the Crown to generate the wealth needed to launch its ongoing missionary campaigns. In fact, it has come to my attention that there is a report circulating at High Command in London describing a reported existence of vast deposits of silver ore located deep in the interior, very close to where some of the natives still reside, I believe. I'm sure they could be helpful in the location of such a rich deposit, as well as its extraction. As slaves... I think that you can tell the bishop that I would be more than honored to conduct one last campaign on behalf of the Crown. Piter, what are you- Evangeline! I'm so glad that you can see both the reason and honor behind this vital mission. The bishop will be very pleased that you've not forgotten your loyalty to church and crown. With the naval arsenal under your command, I'm sure we can all count on a victorious as well as profitable outcome. We expect you to begin your journey back to London to pick up your command in one week's time. Thank you for your kind words, Mr. Kriegerson. I appreciate your coming all this way on such a frigid day to deliver this joyous news. But before you go, I do have a small request. Evangeline had approached the Council some time ago regarding a request for a substantial quantity of saffron. I was dismayed to find that the Council denied her request, without even granting her audience with the deciders to even plead her case cooking a casserole for the entire town, are we? <laughs> no, no, nothing of that sort. The truth is that Evangeline might have a cure for the affliction that is killing the population of Elkinor Island. You mean the exiles? Yes, the exiles. But her... Our fear is that the affliction could spread or be somehow carried to the mainland to us. By offering them a cure, we could be protecting our own health and population. Those wretched souls have been cursed by God. Salvation through Christ the Redeemer is the only cure they will need. It is their own pagan religion that brought their affliction on themselves. Sumdatok is a pious settlement, free of any Viking or pagan filth, and as such, we have nothing to fear from any of God's punishments. Any attempt to interfere with the will of God through potions or sorcery would be viewed as witchcraft. Mr. Kriegerson. It would not be in your best interest to have the bishop know that you have accused the commandant's fiancé of witchcraft. Fiancé? I had no idea that... Evangeline and I have arranged to be married in a few months' time. I have asked for her hand in marriage, and she has accepted. 
so I sincerely hope that you will accord her the full respect befitting the wife of a respected naval officer, and as you said, the hero of Sumner Talk. Especially given the financial benefits that can be expected from a victorious battle with the Bulgarians. Forgive me, Commandant. I meant no disrespect. I was merely concerned about the public opinion Your concern is noted. It is the Council's concern that I would like refocused on my wife's request. Do I make myself clear, Mr. Kriegerson? Very clear, Commandant. I shall make your fiancé's request the highest priority. And congratulations on your engagement. I shall tell the Bishop in Naval Command how helpful you have been. Thank you, Commandant. I shall take my leave and allow you to prepare for your campaign. May God grant your safe passage over such dangerous waters. Oh, and I almost forgot. There was a post addressed to you that was delivered some time ago to the Council Hall. The post these days has a way of getting lost as our little city grows so quickly. I believe it might have been opened by mistake, but I thought I might be kind enough to bring it with me. Ever so sorry you had to wait so long to receive it. I'll just leave it on the table on my way out. I bid you and Evangeline farewell. Farewell, Mr. Kriegerson. Mr. Kriegerson sneered a lurid smile and turned to walk out of the door into the freezing air of Somnatok. He left a tattered scroll on the wooden table that was nearest to the door. As soon as the door closed, Piter's eyes turned to meet Evangeline's that were now blazing hot with fury. Have you completely lost your mind? How dare you allow that filthy little worm into our home to volunteer to become a... a pirate in the name of some religious farce? And on top of all this, now we're getting married! Evangeline, please. What am I supposed to do with you gone on a mission for how long? Six months? Nine months? Leaving as winter is approaching. You know how the people of this village treat me. They don't like strong women here. The more the church tightens its grip, the more the old Nords are viewed as pagans unless they kneel under the bishop's authority. For heaven's sake, Evangeline, be reasonable. I couldn't risk them launching some campaign in the Highlands, finding the Valkyrie tribes and enslaving your people to mine silver for the benefit of the crown. We held out the Scaradoth for years. We can do the same with the British forces. You only achieve victory over the Scaradoth when you formed an alliance with the British naval forces. Your tribe has the finest and bravest warriors I have ever seen, but you would be no match for the sheer numbers of an invading force, not to mention superior weaponry. It's not fair. They can't treat us like the Scaradoth. We have no religion that guides us. Each person in our village is free to believe whatever the spirits tell them. It is not for a church or chief to tell a subject what to believe. I don't believe in any sort of singular god at all, Piter, and... I know that, Evangeline. And unfortunately, so does the council and many others in town, which is exactly why they fear you. Look, we can discuss this further, but please hand me the post from Kriegerson that he brought over. This could be the news we're waiting for, Evangeline. The Eden Initiative? Yes. Here, now, let me read what it says. Yes, it's from Dr. Stephen Parker. This is the news we've been waiting for. Commandant Scarleton, I hope this letter finds you well. As you know, the weather in London continues to disappoint. However, I am hopeful for bright breaks in the weather ahead. Furthermore, I hope you will treat me to some of the extraordinary Nordic wine that I've heard so much about. Please make sure that Evangeline gets the message. Yours most sincerely... Dr. Stephen Parker. The hell is this drivel? This doesn't make any sense. Evangeline, can you believe this? We convey one of the most radical ideas in civilized history to this man, and an idea that would probably have us both arrested and executed, and he responds with some bloody diatribe of travel. My dear, may I please see the letter? Well, I just read it to you. I don't see... Thank you, Piter. Hmm... <laughs> I think your friend Parker has a better sense of humor than you give him credit for. What do you mean? What are you doing with that bottle of wine? I don't understand. How did... Baking soda. He used a baking soda solution as invisible ink that can be revealed by utilizing the acid in grape juice or wine. It's actually an old Viking trick used when commanders were relaying vital information. Your comrade knows his history. I'll be damned. Well, go on. What does the letter say? 
My dearest friend Piter, it is rare that in one's life the embrace of genius is given so easily and selflessly. I am deeply honored that you have included and confided in me your, your plan, plan to create a remote and isolated utopian society. To think, what better way to determine and promote the essence of humanity than to collate its finest members into a community free from want, need, hunger, or greed? I cannot wait to finally meet Evangeline and thank her for her leadership on this design of populating the group exclusively with the best of each intellectual field. The best scholars in every field of science, biologists, physicists, doctors, philosophers, teachers, and engineers. Men and women on fully equal footing socially as well as freedom from religious doctrine. Reason shall rule. Science will rule. Progressive thought shall rule. Progress will be our god, and spiritual dogma shall be banished to memory. I fully understand my role to identify and recruit the 300 scholars needed to take part in this. What did you call it? The Eden Initiative. You have bravely volunteered to provide the naval vessels required for such a long journey, as well as the considerable wealth that will be needed to trade with local and international parties and keep our members free from want. No idea in history has ever been this well-funded. By your actions, each member shall have the wealth equivalent of any count or countess in Europe. By making each member so wealthy, you are freeing them from the demands of material pursuits and allowing them to devote all of their energies to practical and theoretical research for the betterment of society as a whole. As you requested, I have discreetly researched your question regarding our initiative's secession and it is with great regret that I must inform you that our actions will be considered legal grounds for treason and religious treachery under the church and crown law. Once you have obtained the ships and the gold, there will literally be no turning back. This may be a moot point because of your actions commandeering the naval vessels as well as the treasury boats will be considered acts of mutiny and piracy regardless. In closing, I am humbled by the audacity and brilliance of your plan. The Eden Initiative will launch a new era in human development and advance societal evolution to an enlightened state of being. I thank you and will meet you, along with the other 300 members of the group, at the prearranged rendezvous point on April 8th, 1044. Your job is not an easy one, and all of us will be eternally in your debt. I wish you and Evangeline the best of fortune in your crucial phase of the Eden Initiative. Yours sincerely, Dr. Stephen Parker. My God, Evangeline, did you hear that? Parker is in. He's going to do it. Your idea will happen. The Eden Initiative will become a reality. Piter, Piter, this news is wonderful, but did you forget something? You have been drafted by the Crown to reclaim the Vatican treasure near Bulgaria. You'll never have enough time to orchestrate your plan of commandeering the treasury boats. Don't you see, Evangeline? This could be even better. I'll be able to cover our tracks more efficiently. I'll be able to take the best ship in the British fleet to Bulgaria, steal back as much stolen treasure as possible from the Bulgarians, and then have the reports that our ship went down in a fierce battle circulate throughout the Mediterranean. We'll have the swiftest ship and the greatest amount of riches to fund our dream with nobody looking for us. Your plan is a bold one. But lest you forget that you will still have to do battle with Bulgarian pirates, and that you will still have a ship full of crew that will not abandon ship on a mere whim, what will you do with them? This is my mission. I will be granted the latitude to crew my ship with those I see fit. I will choose only the officers I know for certain will be sympathetic to the Eden Initiative's goals. Frankly, I've been thinking that we need more members with military experience in case we are somehow discovered or encounter hostility wherever we land. The rest of the crew, however, will have to be removed. Removed? How? Evangeline. Removed how? There will be a battle and men die in battles. I will not condone murder to promote an initiative of peace. That is against everything I believe in. Look around us, Eva. The world isn't changing. Yes, there is a new sweep of holy fervor taking hold of Europe, but the violence is the same, just the leaders are different. 
Whether we kill in the name of God, the king, or for riches, or some imaginary line on a map, killing comes too easily and too often to mankind. And the ones who profit from it always stay in power. Don't you see? That's why your idea so, is so radical and beautiful, of the Eden Initiative is vital and so threatening to the status quo. An egalitarian society of peace and plenty that operates as one for the sole purpose of scientific and artistic advancement. If word escaped that we prospered with no king, no god, and without money to divide us, it would shake the foundation of the world around us. Which is exactly why we need to take the resources necessary to fund and create the initiative as soon as possible will never be given to us and we won't have enough time to wait for the world to change. Time will always be the enemy of those with greater vision than those around them. We cannot escape the inevitable truth. There is never enough time. If some lives are lost, it will be nothing compared to the members of the Eden Initiative that will be executed if our plans are ever discovered or the lives we will save with the advancements that the Initiative will create. Thinking in the larger scale has always been your greatest gift, Evangeline. I implore you to apply it to the task at hand and realize that for the sake of our dream, your dream, decisive action must be taken. I, I agree, and will trust your judgment in these matters. But I wish there was another way. I too, my dear. I too. Evangeline spent the next few days trying to occupy herself with seemingly endless tasks of getting Piter ready for his impending military campaign. She busied herself every second of the day to avoid listening to the two voices inside of her that seemed to be screaming at one another. How can a society be utopian when it is built on blood spilled or money stolen? How will the society not degenerate into a pirate's haven? Who will know the secrets as to how the funds were obtained? An egalitarian society of unregulated free thinking cannot be founded on top of lies and secrets. How will people continue to strive to create, to invent, and to cure when they shall have all their material needs placated? Will the scientists we bring on become lazy and count their gold all day? Will our doctors become lazy and view the sick with resentment for taking them away from their material pleasures? Will our artists grow uninspired? Will the progress that our world so desperately needs be pushed forward, or will we fall back into the trap of being intoxicated by our own glory, being half dead and half alive in... Of course! Piter! Outside, my dear. Piter! My goodness, love, what has possessed you? I have the answer. I know how you can isolate yourself and the officers loyal to you from the rest of the crew. Yes, tell me. Every year in December, close to your Christmas time, the Valkyrie communities come together to celebrate the winter solstice. It is a holy ritual conducted in a secret location deep in the fjords. The most gifted priestesses from each of the five major tribes undergoes a ceremony in which she has to ingest the Dystodrum, a potion that allows the priestesses to leave their body, purify themselves, and communicate with the darkest spirits of the night to plead for peace and prosperity for the following year. During their visions, their bodies lie in a near-death state for close to 24 hours. I see you could find a way to give the potion to the crew and then leave them on an island or someplace they can be found while they are in their unconscious state. You'll need to find a way to make them believe that they were thrown from the ship. My God, Evangeline, you amaze me with your inventiveness. I know now why all the women in your family have been leaders in their community. Your praise is appreciated but comes too quickly. The Dystodrum is an incredibly difficult potion to create. I will need ingredients that grow only in a single field about two days' journey from here. That doesn't leave us much time. I leave at the end of the week. I'll be at sea for a long time, and tonight... I want the pleasures of your affections to encompass me and last me until dawn. You have me, my love. Both tonight and until time ends. As the sun set over Somnotok, Piter watched the burning red of the sky meld with his lover's hair. She was simply the most beautiful woman he had ever laid eyes upon. He was overcome with urgent love for his warrior princess and placed his hands on her face and kissed her passionately as if it would be their last.
Early dawn light crept through a small opening in the heavy velvet curtains in the skeleton house bedroom. A hot, errant ray of light settled on Piter's eyes, and he awoke with a squint. Before he could sit up, though, a burning in his throat overtook him, and he began to cough violently. Secretly, he knew that his illness was more serious than he was letting on, but Evangeline had enough to concern herself with now. He coughed again, but desperately tried to quiet himself so as not to awake his beloved Evangeline. But as his hand explored the bed, he realized it was empty. Evangeline had left more than two hours ago. Evangeline was pushing her horse, Aldsvedir, to continue north as fast as he could carry her. She was traveling with no more than a large satchel strapped to her back, despite the frigid cold of the morning air. She was a skilled woman of the Norse woods and had little fear in her ability to provide food, shelter and warmth for herself. After all, these were her woods, where she was raised, where she ruled, until she fell so desperately in love with Piter. Her only concern now was with time. Piter's words echoed in her head. There is never enough time. Evangeline rode her loyal horse until he could run no more. She made a camp upon a high cliff that overlooked the Fenstrauden River. A small rock outcropping provided protection for both her and the fire she built. She gathered some edible roots and captured a small rabbit for dinner and allowed her eyes to close, both dreaming and worrying about the future ahead. Everything could be gained or everything lost. Either the Eden Initiative will become a reality and the best minds in the world will come together in the name of peace and science or... Or I will lose my beloved. Evangeline's mind finally gave in to sleep, and she dreamed of a settlement. She felt the presence of water, water everywhere, some sort of connection. The Eden Initiative was real. It existed, but something was missing. There was a stone room full of people, elders, members of the Initiative. They were all gathered, waiting for something, someone. There was fear. Intense, strong fear. Someone was coming. Someone that... Altsvider? What is it? Why do you fret, boy? Easy now. It's okay. But it was clear that everything was not okay. Altsvider, her brave horse for 15 years, was shaking in fear. And Evangeline could feel the cold night air vibrating at an odd pitch. Something was coming. Something unnatural was coming closer. Something was almost upon them. There was pressure building around her. Suddenly, the sky exploded in an eruption of fierce colors. A circle of light hovered in the night sky directly above Evangeline, pulsing and shimmering. Flashes of red, blue, and green light shot outward like bolts of lightning. A sphere of flame shot out of the circle and blazed across the sky like a comet. It screamed through the night air, but then turned sharply right and sped inland to the dense Norse forest. The sphere must have been at least a mile above Evangeline's head, but she could feel some of the hairs on her arm had been singed by heat. The streak of flame continued inland past the fords into the wood. Treetops were aflame in the straight line heading northeast. Suddenly, the ground beneath her shook violently as Evangeline realized that whatever the heavens had so viciously ejected had now crashed into the earth. Evangeline quickly jumped upon her terrified horse that bucked and bayed, but ultimately obeyed her commands. She raced off following the burning trees, trying to imagine what awaited her beyond the woods. The tops of the trees were no longer burning, but were now broken and bent aside as if a giant were clearing a path for itself. A long trench that left smoldering tree stumps in its wake led off into a clearing ahead. At the beginning of the trench, Evangeline dismounted Aldsvider and secured him to one of the few trees left standing. It's okay, brave one, I won't be long. In her trembling heart, she hoped her words were truthful. She walked down the length of the trench, which now had widened into a large crater. The earth underneath her feet was warm and smoking in places. The crater accumulated in a steep drop-off that descended down about 15 feet. As she peered over the side, a flash of pain pierced Evangeline's mind. Ugh! She looked over the side and saw a large silver sphere that was split in half at its diameter, resembling a broken egg. 
Evangeline felt passionately drawn to the strange object that now held some sort of hold, some sort of connection with her mind. Evangeline scrambled down the steep incline, slipping and almost losing her balance in parts. The heat was growing stronger, making her squint her eyes. But then she saw them, there. Two human-like figures lay within the cradle of one of the half-spheres. They both appeared to be moving, but from their body language, Evangeline knew immediately that they were in great pain. Hello? Can you hear me? My name is Evangeline. I am a healer. Are you all right? I'm going to come down to help you. Evangeline climbed down to the center of the crater and was now mere feet from the broken sphere. The heat seemed to lessen slightly and she could see the bodies inside clearer now. <gasps> the two bodies inside had dark blue skin with small bumps on them like the skin of an orange. Yellow and orange liquid seemed to be leaking from various points on their bodies. A powerful smell like vinegar permeated the air. Their eyes were a bright yellow set unnaturally wide on their faces with no pupils that she could discern and she did not find any evidence of mouths. And then she realized... These beings before her were quite clearly not human, and they were not of this earth. Simultaneously, the two creatures both turned to face Evangeline and set their eyes blazing at her. Help us. Please help us. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com. You're listening to Wednesday Wonders on the Mutual Audio Network, where you can enjoy the wonders of the imagination. And speaking of wonders, everybody wonders why the Bells in the Bat Free podcast is still plugging along, not only on Friday Follies, but a bunch of times on Sunday Showcase as well. Give Bells in the Bat Free a listen sometime, and you'll wonder how he gets away with some of that stuff. Rated G, family-friendly. Caution, occasional toxic puns. <laughs>